When you hear that guitar riff, you know that it's 1 p.m. on the East Coast. It is a market call. I'm Guy Adami. That's Dan Nathan. It's just the two of us today. This market call, Dan, brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity, where Laird Hamilton looks over the Pacific Ocean waiting for his set, not unlike Bodie uh, from Point Break. And, of course, our data provider, FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow, we're gonna to be we're gonna be really like on it today. One thirty, and we're five thousand. Uh, but how are you? I'm doing great, guy. Have you ever surfed, guy? As we go immediately into a tangent here. Sorry, Amanda. the The short answer is I have attempted to do it. I will tell you, the core strength required to be a proper surfer is is something else because there is a move from being prone on a surfboard to getting then. Uh, standing on a surfboard is a one-step move and if you try to do it in multiple steps you're not going to make it so that's a very difficult move it looks it looks exquisitely easy when you watch some of the great surfers out there but not as easy as it looks well it's interesting i mean and and, and again if you have like little kind of um little arms like our boy rafis um yeah. on the squad here it's kind of hard to paddle out for a guy like that it, you know what i mean so like that's one of the reasons why we, we we really want him to focus on those tries as he gets kind of set for his pll triceps by the way are 60 percent of your upper arm so yeah. for you folks out there that are doing biceps to try yeah. to get your arms bigger in fact you should be focused on the tricep. And by the way, and sorry, Amanda, again, one of the great scenes in movie history, of course, is in Apocalypse Now, where Robert Duvall looks over the ocean and says, Charlie doesn't surf. Back to you. It's not even an ocean. It, it's it's a river. And when you yeah. think about that, so they, they got the helicopters kind of making a bit of a, a like a like a like a faux surf there. The, uh, yeah. I'm with you on that. All right. Charlie does not surf. Let's talk about um the market here guy because this is this is one of my favorite days of the week on tuesdays we get to talk through the the lens of futures here i gotta tell you let's just pull up this s p 500 futures here the e-minis because they just like you know that expression can't get out of its own way i mean yeah. really can't get out of that february 2nd high here and it feels like they're just waiting for something here you know like they're just waiting for you know some crazy colonel to clear a beach so some guy can kind of you know, catch some waves or something like that but it's just not what is going to be the thing that breaks it out is it going to be some bs sort of debt ceiling deal that kicks the can down the road and then we're gonna have this huge budget fight because to me that really feels like something that you would want to sell on the gap that's what we've talked about. Carter brought it up yesterday. You know, if in fact this thing does get reconciled in some way, I do think you'll see that knee-jerk reaction higher. Maybe that will be the sell the news type of event. Or, you know, again, we're going to talk about this, this continued rhetoric, U.S.-China relations, President Biden saying things are going to get better. I think President Xi probably has a different view. We talked about Micron yesterday. We're going to talk about Apple and Broadcom a little bit today. So there are a lot of cross currents there without question. Those are two things as well. Obviously, NVIDIA earnings, I think, are going to be important. We've talked about that to death, but that could be clearly a market-moving event. And, you know, things in Russia, Ukraine continue to get worse, not better. So there are a lot of things out there, obviously, to be concerned about. The Obviously, the lag effect of 500 basis points of hikes over a year is something as well that the market's not taking into consideration. We talked about that yesterday, and we've talked about it for a while. So what's the catalyst? I don't know. But I mean, it, it, you know, quite frankly, the fact that we've been sideways for this period of time, the, the VIX at 17 and change actually does make sense in that context. But it doesn't make sense nearly in the context of some of the bogey boogeymen that are out there. 
Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. Here's one, and you brought this up a lot. And last week on uh, CNBC's Fast Money, we had uh, Michael Kantopoulos. He's at Bernstein Advisors, and he's a credit guy um, on. And he started the show with with the whole thing that we kind of broke out here. It was talking about over the weekend, last weekend, there was there was like seven bankruptcies, and he's just kind of tracking these. And so, you know, th these were not, you know, publicly traded companies. They were not big companies, but they're companies that, you know, if you're starting to look at credit cycles, you're starting to think about what are the lag effects of these rate hikes, mm -hmm. what is the the difficulty that smaller businesses have access to capital now that's much more expensive given rates, but also given what happened in the regionals. And there's an article in Bloomberg um, that I thought was really interesting today. Looming defaults threaten chain reaction from credit into stocks. The warnings from credit watchers have been coming for months and a looming wave of corporate defaults is going to shatter the calm in the equity markets. And I think that's really interesting. Go on to read that. We'll put that in the show notes. But, you know, it's also yesterday was Jamie Dimon speaking at their investor day. And, you know, he also spoke to the fact that in the real estate market, we're going to see a bunch of, and, and, and that article is not just speaking about real estate. So in general, you know, that could be the thing that does in infuse a little volatility in the equity markets because if all of a sudden there are fear of going out of business of running out of capital especially if we were to have an economic downturn that's worse than expected something that the equity markets are not clearly pricing right now they're they're pricing a very mild recession if we start to see credit defaults pick up and bankruptcies. I mean, that's the thing that will work its way into the equity markets. I've said that for a while. I believe that credit, it's not stocks specifically that are going to drive markets. It's going to be a vent in the credit cycle that's going to, and I think that's where a lot of people have been concerned about for a while. Now, that concern has been unwarranted for a period of time because, quite frankly, there hasn't been anything out there to give you pause. But you're starting to see it around the edges to your earlier point about Michael Kantopoulos. And the thing that I look at to sort of gauge that is the HYG. We don't have to pull it up because it doesn't move. But I will tell you, you know, it's 74 and change. Um, I think the low that we saw was 70 and a half ish. I think it rallied back up to about 78. So we're right in the middle of this range. It doesn't really bounce, but it doesn't really sell off either. So this is the one you have to look at to say, OK, if this thing takes another leg lower, What's going to happen? And obviously, the last big move was in March, April of 2020. I think we all understand what was going on there. You had the subsequent bounce. But this thing really has been sort of sideways to lower for a period of time. And, you know, now they have the moving average sloping lower. I do think they're – if you think about what's going on in the world, if you think about what's going on in China, but specifically what's going on here in the United States, Europe's slowing down. I mean, this economy was so addicted to low rates to think that they're just going to sort of flip a switch and get accustomed or acclimated to rates where they are now. I think it's just foolish. And they're going to be credit events. And I think at a certain point, Dan, to Michael's point, to that article's point, it's going to manifest itself in the equity market. Now, you see no signs of that whatsoever, but you rarely do until it happens, I guess, is the point. And you know, that's not it's it's just the way it happens in the equity markets. Things don't happen and they all happen all at once. Yeah. And it's interesting. You know, we started out talking about, uh, you know, a little bit of the tit for tat we're having in this economic hot war with China. And, you know, you could say that people have been calling for this for decades now. But there's an article in The Economist and there was one in Bloomberg. The one in The Economist from earlier in the month, China's local debt crisis is about to get nasty. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you keep, there's a, we'll put that in the show notes. There's, there's just been 
a lot of that. And so when you think about, I go back to like 2015 in the summer, do you remember there was a growth scare and there was a credit scare in China? And do you remember the volatility that unleashed on global equities and stuff? So I, I feel like for whatever reason, it's probably one of the most complacent periods that I, I can remember. And you know, you mentioned this on many occasions last year, the sell-off in equities, okay, despite the, the speed in which rates went up in 2022, was so orderly. It really was. And you've said this, and, and I, I think it's really kind of something that makes me always think twice when you say it. The panics last year in the equity market were to cover shorts. Mm -hmm. when, when, you know, and I feel like we're, we were in that period, you know, in April a little bit. I think the sideway action that we've seen right now is something that really smacks of complacency. And it really feels like there's some tape bombs out there. And I'm not, this is not fear mongering or whatever. I just don't see the risk reward in the bull case right here relative to what I think could go wrong and, and the way that I think a lot of investors are off sides a little bit. And I think that's reflective in the NASDAQ futures guide because six stocks make up 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100, which is what the, the, the NASDAQ you know, 100 E-mini futures track. And that is a flight 100% to quality. And it speaks to what we've just talked about as far as what the potential for credit risk. It does not exist in those top six names. Well, it's quality in the form of the companies, but- it's excessive, it's excessively expensive in terms of valuation for most, if not all, those six companies. And I guess maybe if you backed out Google, which might be one of them, I mean, you can make a compelling case on valuation. But when you look at Microsoft, Apple, obviously, NVIDIA, we talk about till our eyes glaze over. I mean, Netflix has recently got back on its horse. I mean, these are all relatively now expensive stocks in the context of where the broader market is and where they are trading historically. And quickly, in terms of you know China, what's going on there, we, we don't bring it up to be fear mongers. But to your point about panic, I would say last year, I'd have to go back and sort of look. There were probably, I don't know, 12 to 15 or so panic days last year. Two of them were panic sell days. And we actually flagged a couple of them. We flagged them both. One was in June of last year. I think it was June 16th, and one was around October 21st or so. And we talked about those. Those were your panic sell days, and those both were days when the VIX spiked to about 34, and we talked about that being a short-term bottom. That proved to be the case. But the rest of the time, all the panic was to the upside. People uh, worried about missing the rally, and yeah. we'll see. I mean, to, but I think you make a good point. There's no panic at all in the market. And when you do see panic, it's people panic buying. And that to me is a bit problematic. Well, you know, it's interesting. Last night on Fast Money Guy, we were talking about <clears throat> Jamie Dimon's comments at his investor day. And, you know, the, the fact that he said he's telling this is this was really interesting. He's like, I'm not only telling people, I'm not only telling clients, I'm telling other banks, be prepared for six or seven percent mm -hmm. at funds, which to me. The fact that the S&P does not miss a beat on that, like not one beat. And, and, you know, and he talked about what comes after this period that we've just been in is going to be a credit cycle and the potential for higher defaults. And just think about that. Right. And he said something about like, so what do banks do? They don't make that next loan if they think it's going to be to a worse credit. Right. And so you think about what that means for the economy. I just find it fascinating. And our friend Doug Cass he mentioned this and, and and just the technicals and Doug is not one, I think, to spend a whole heck of a lot of time on technicals. But let's just pull up first the JP Morgan, the two day chart. It opened up 
yesterday morning, I think we talked about it a little bit on market mm-hmm. call on, on what they mentioned as far as like the acquisition of First Republic and it's going to be an extra $3 billion in net interest margin. And, you know, great. Okay. So the stock opens up, it's trading like, you know, 141 and a half, and it spends the whole day going lower and closes very near the low of the day. And look at it today, it's down again. And then let's look at it on a one year basis here. You know, this one, which is obviously best of breed, and they're going to get this and that or whatever, it really does feel like it wants to fill in that gap at some point. And so I think you want to take, like, we can maybe stop looking at the KRE, the regional bank index, and start to focus on the major money centers that seem to be the beneficiary of all the trouble in regional banking land. There's a scene in Jaws. I'm sorry, Amanda, for this. Maybe we can put this in the show notes. When Richard Dreyfus finally gets to Amity, Amity, by the way, means friendship for you playing our home game. And he walks out to the dock and there are about eight sort of bird brains getting into a boat that's probably made for two or three different people. And, you know, he asks them where there's a hotel, where there's a restaurant. But before he says that, he's like, you know, you may want to, think twice before going out with so many people in the boat and they basically give him a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. What do you know? But they basically call him out and turns out Richard Dreyfus was right, obviously. Uh, and, and some of the comments he made to those folks, people don't want to hear it is my point. Jamie Dimon is telling you, or at least he's telling the market exactly what's going to happen, but nobody wants to listen. So he's going to go to get his steak in a local restaurant and he's going to let the rest of these dipshits go out to sea and basically cast their fate to a large creature in the Atlantic Ocean. And that's what's going on here. Nobody wants to hear the reality of the situation. The reality is rates are going higher. Credit is tightening. This is an economy whose lifeblood is credit. This is an economy whose lifeblood is small business that are reliant on banks to make loans. I mean, you look at just look at it through that lens and you tell me how this manifests itself in any way other than a bearish scenario. Yeah, well, I agree. Oh, a great movie, by the way. Um, Robert I, Shaw, yeah. one of the After great. After I saw actors. that movie, I think it was like seventy-seven. I don't, I don't think I took a bath for like three. Uh, years. I, mean, I didn't, I, you know. I mean, I'm just saying. Um, let's talk about yields, um, because again, you know, going off of what Jamie's saying and all this Fed speak, we spent a lot of time talking about it yesterday on on the tape podcast with our good friend Liz Young. That would be E Y um, from SoFi. I mean, going back to Laurie Logan and 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 Bullard. And yeah. I mean, these guys are the guys and gals. They're, they're, they're saying we're, they sounded hawkish, you know, to me. And, and sounded, like, I mean, they, yeah. they could, you know, again, yes. I mean, I'm not meaning to jump on you, but you have all these Fed heads come out and talking these. I mean, they're not backing away at all. And this is in the wake of obviously bank failures. We've seen three. This is in the wake of obviously layoffs across a swath of industries. Um, they, they, they're, st- they're standing, they're holding firmly onto that till and they're yeah. continuing to basically head into the storm full speed ahead. So what does that tell you? Again, at 4,200, the S&P doesn't care. HYG doesn't care. Um, but at a certain point, I think people are going to come to the realization that the economy is slowing down, rates are going higher. That's not necessarily a good um, scenario. Yeah, well, let's just look at the two-year um, U.S. Treasury yield, and you know it was trading just a few weeks ago at like three sixty, and here we are at four forty. And you know what's interesting to me when I look at the CME Fed Funds um, tracker, their FedWatch tool, looking at the the odds of a twenty-five basis point hike 
at their June meeting, they're not really moving, guy. Like they're no. about 28% or so. And when you look at the way the two-year has moved, if you look in and you just listen to what you know some of these Fed speakers have said just in the last week, and then you hear Jamie Dimon, you know, I mean, listen, well, you know, Jamie Dimon, CEO, major bank largest bank in the world, that sort of thing. I mean, that guy could easily be the treasury secretary, the fed, you know, the, the fed chief, I mean, like, like the United so, States, well, any, any, any of the above. Yeah. So right, when, when, when that guy is speaking from his perch, I, I almost think he has a lot more weight than some Dallas fed president or something like that. I mean, right. Or no, I mean, I'm just curious. Oh, why I, I, I agree with that. I'm not, I'm not comparing them in terms of the importance, but I think you're right. When he makes comments like that, it doesn't listen it does not behoove him or the bank to make comments like that unless you say, well, they're in such a um, premium position that that actually making comments like that are going to help J.P. Morgan in the long run. I don't think that's necessarily it. I think he's actually saying what he thinks. He's seeing across the landscape and he's been and he hasn't really wavered, Dan. I mean, this has been going on for over a year now, some of the comments that he's made and he hasn't really backed off of any of it. With uh, And quite frankly, a lot of things are playing out. The only thing that's not playing out, again, is the market action. Um, but if you put that yield to two-year yields back up, I mean, look at the volatility, 5.1% down to 3.5%, up to 4.4%. 4. I mean, that's pretty significant moves in a very short period of time. And that move index, which was sort of flatlining for a period of time, um, late winter into early spring, is now back on the move, ironically. And you know, that typically leads to equity volatility at some point as well. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, okay, so we have yields going up. We have the, you know, the 10 year um, also, which has had um, a nice little move. It was kind of going either side of that three and a half percent, which is maybe just kind of a, a psychologically um, important level. You see the downtrend that's been in place since the 10 year was, um, I think back in October, mm -hmm. uh, early November, it was maybe 438 or something. Yeah, something like that. I mean, it really does feel like it wants to make a run towards that. 4% level. So if you think about this, let's pull up the, the, the dollar, the US dollar, the Dixie, the DXY. You know, if you look at the move the Dixie's had, you look at the move rates have had, um, you know, crude oil feels like it kind of stopped going down a little bit. Guy, maybe 70 is is kind of a level here. Uh, and the and the Dixie moving up, you know, these are all things again that I don't think are are, are kind of equity valuation friendly here, but that goes back to what we've been talking about. I mean. The equity markets is literally encapsulated in six or seven names. And, and Doug has a great um, post out on Real Money, this Doug Cast, um, on, on just the kind of bubble in AI. And this is not, we're not saying it's like the dot-com bubble and things are about to burst. But the enthusiasm around these names, the disregard for valuation, the length in which it's going to really take for like a meaningful earnings impact for many of these companies, right? To kind of work it into, it's just like we're front end loading a lot of that sort of behavior. And so we bring that up because to me, if anything cool, then we're going to spend a lot of time with Carter tomorrow in NVIDIA. So we're not going to really do that right now. But if anything cool is about the, the in, in, you know, intermediate term, you know, outlook for these stocks and what they're able to kind of garner from an earnings standpoint. I mean, this thing is toast. I mean, like, I mean, in my opinion, like, because it's all in a handful of names. It's interesting. I'm reading some of the comments and somebody was pointing out, and I'm, I apologize because it went too fast, but you know, all scenarios that you guys are pointing out are bearish, but it was said in sort of a sarcastic tone. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Thank you for that, Jacob. So I, here's my point. Rates up 
Yes, it's bearish. Why? Because rates going higher are not suggestive of an economy that's getting better. Rates are going higher because inflation is still a problem, in my opinion. And the Fed people basically have outlined that. So I think that's why rates going higher are bearish. Earnings remain strong. Earnings really that strong. Earnings this past quarter were better than expected. But if you look at it year over year, they weren't particularly strong. They just were better than anticipated, which to me only sort of I don't know. I think we're just sort of prolonging the inevitable in terms of earnings getting weaker again. So, yes, earnings beat, but they beat, I think, in terms of people being overly pessimistic, me being one of them, by the way. So and earnings down is a bad economy. Yeah, pretty much, um, because I think you're going to start seeing margins compressed, because if you look at a broad swath of companies now, they're telling you they can no longer pass the higher cost to their customer, which means margins are going to contract. So do we have all our bases covered? I guess so. I mean, I'm not trying to cover our bases. I'm trying to point out what I think is going on. And to your point about the dollar, Dan, if we can bring that chart back up, I think one of the things you're seeing, I mean, you flagged the, a long dollar trade, I want to say a week and a half or two weeks ago, and I apologize. No, it was in April. It was, it was about It was in April. Uh, yeah. Things go by quickly. But, yeah. you know, it's playing out. So the dollar has bounced. You know, we sort of flagged those little mini double bottoms. That's playing out. I think to a certain extent, as it counterintuitive as it seems, I think with this debt ceiling thing, I think, in fact, it is a flight to quality in the form of the dollar. Obviously, rates have gone higher along the way, whether it's rates dragging the dollar up or the dollar dragging rates up. I don't know, but the two are sort of going hand in hand. And I still think there's probably a little bit more room higher in the dollar which is going to sort of be counter to what I'm about to tell you next, Dan, Nathan. Yeah. And so, Guy, we, we missed you on um, on the tape podcast uh, last Thursday, Friday, when we recorded on Thursday for the Friday job. Danny, Moses, and myself, Danny uh, was channeling his inner Guy Adami talking about the shiny metal here. And he really thought that, um, again, you know, the dollar, the rally that it's had, it was really, I, I think, you know, it maybe feels like a dead cat bounce. It seems like, you know, we had that week or two where all those billionaire like investor, you know, guys were out and they're all bullish on AI and they're bullish on this, and that, whatever. They're all bearish on the dollar. I thought that was really interesting. So we've this kind of you know few percent move in the dollar off that kind of 100 ish level or so i'd be raising the stop on that because i think the further it goes the more likely it is to kind of go the opposite way especially as it kind of hits that sort of downtrend that's been in place for the last year or so but that does bring us to gold and danny mentioned it and he thinks that you know uh, but he basically looks at the chart and says it's a bit of a back and fill we have a one-year chart right here guy and you saw that move got to about 2080 on a one-year basis is now through its 50-day moving average but you see that uptrend that we've drawn there so talk to us a little bit about how you're thinking about it because i remember when it broke out above 2000 you thought of course we could get a bit of a back and fill but you think that we're going to have a move that goes much higher at some point this year yeah i do and i think that last leg higher i don't think it necessarily got the requisite people in the requisite people being hedge funds and some of these major institutions. So again, you know, everybody continues to be bullish of gold, but I don't think the market is necessarily uh, long of gold, which I say that because that actually is a positive thing because I don't think this flush is going to be exaggerated. We're going right back to this uptrend line, as you pointed out. Uh, the moving averages are still in your favor. As a matter of fact, you had back in January, I think, or early February, the 50-day crossing the 200-day, which, as you know, historically is pretty bullish. And I think that will continue. So this back and fill makes sense. And I'll say this as well. You're seeing consolidation in the space. Miners out there 
You're seeing the deals. You saw that recent uh, acquisition that Newmont Mining is about to make. So that to me is very supportive. And again, if you go and look what central banks are doing, the Chinese continue to be net sellers of treasuries, net buyers of gold. And that's sort of true around the world. All these central banks continue to buy gold. Last year, I think um, 1,131 tons of gold were bought by central banks to the tune of about $71 billion. We're probably on course to do similar this year. Did not necessarily manifesting itself in the price. Um, obviously, we had that little move up recently, but I think it's just a matter of time, Dan. All right. So looking at this chart and backing it out, that kind of $2,100 level guy, it's maybe 2080, 2085 or so. That's where we got just kind of last month there. It was failed to break out. But when you look at the steepness of that uptrend and you see how much uh, further it is above its 200-day moving average. It just got through its 50. I mean, this is kind of a level to reload. If you really think that we are on the precipice of a move, and that would be an epic breakout because it, when you know you hear people like Carter who um, has forgotten more uh, about technical analysis than you and I will ever know, the more times a, a security tests a level, right? When it finally gets through that level, it really means, what, what, what's your old, uh, your, your high school sweetheart? What did she say, Louise Yamada? Uh, the longer the the longer in longer in space, the higher in outer side, you know, who the yeah, hell knows? Like I mean, no, that was way back space, when. The higher in space. All right. So talk to me a little bit how you want to play. You got the back and fill. You thought it would come back here. This is the level, that uptrend. And if you're playing for um, a breakout of that kind of 2080, 2085 level, how do you want to use the futures to do that? Well, I'm glad because today is the day we look through things in the lens of futures and we have outlined a trade. So let's take a look. So you, you're buying the futures right effectively right here 1967 somewhere between 1965 and 1970 depending where it is this second um your stop is pretty tight around 1935 ish um but your upside initial target is 2085 so we go if we can go back to that trend line real quick just to take a look for context you're basically stopping out through the trend line effectively on the downside on the upside you're looking for a move back to that horizontal red line now Go back to the trade real quick. So you're getting long here. Your stop is tight. Your initial target is that recent high. With that said, um, you get a close above that, Dan, and you can start really trading from strength. You can start adding to a long position. So although that's the initial target, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to take the entire thing off. So I'm a still big believer in the gold trade. Danny Moses clearly is. Central banks clearly are. What I've said for a while now is I believe central banks are buying gold to hedge their own ineptitude, and it's been working, and I think you can continue to see that. And if we do get that close above sort of 2100, I think that's going to trigger an entirely new wave of buying from participants that have been in the gold market for quite some time. Yeah, and I'll just mention one thing. So, you know, what, what are we trying to do here? It's a fast market with some of these um, commodities and, and, and FX and rates. We talk about it a lot. The only thing that's not moving a lot are equities. So when you think about buying this, this futures contract, in 1967 stopping it down you know 30 handles and you say to yourself well that's one and a half percent i mean that's a that's a big move in gold mm -hmm. okay and so you want to keep your stops really tight and to your point is like if there is something that happens with the debt ceiling you know um negotiations here and all of a sudden you find this thing 
back above, let's call it 2000, you're going to want to raise your stop. And then I love what you said, guy, if you get above, if you actually get the breakout, then you really are playing from strength and you know exactly where, you know, that stop should be to the downside here. But again, continue to raise the stops, but also keep it tight and look for opportunities to get back in and use the technicals to help inform it. Okay. Guy Adami on the board with gold. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, I, I think, a piece of news that I think is really important. We spent a lot of time talking about this going back and forth between the U.S. and China and all the the, the, the kind of chip wars that we are in right now. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. You know, our country has been battling with China, you know, with this kind of issue of technology transfer or forced technology transfer. But we also rely on, on China for manufacturing, right? And though a lot of our multinationals that are basically designed um, and make chips, they have them manufactured over there in China. So we started the week and we talked a little bit yesterday about the Micron ban. I thought this headline out of Apple is really interesting. And I just talked about it with CNBC's tech check uh, extraordinaire Deirdre Bosa on OK Computer a little bit. She thought it was really interesting that the headline came from Apple. Apple is usually really careful about their messaging, about how they kind of manufacture and who their partners are and what they allow them to say. And so they are actually in a multi-billion dollar deal with Broadcom who makes 5G frequency chips. These are not advanced AI chips and this and that, whatever, but to actually have them made here in the U.S. guy. And when you think about that, right, and we talk about Apple all the time is that really going to be ground zero for any real, yeah. real economic war that we have with China. Look at this chart, though, man. This thing is up 35% from its January lows. It just made a matched high from its 52-week highs here. You look at the steepness of that um, rally that we've had here. I'm just curious, like, are we going to see more and more headlines out of Apple diversifying away from China? Are they fearing some sort of retaliatory action by the Chinese? Also, the more that they move away from China, we know that Tim Cook was just in India. We know they're going to be manufacturing in India. We know that they're targeting opening stores there and kind of harnessing that consumer over there. Is, is Apple going to be at the eye of the storm? Yeah, 100%. And, and we've been saying it for a while. Now, when we said it and the stock was headed lower, we looked like geniuses. We've been saying it since the stock has gone higher since January, and it's flying in the face. But the reality is nothing's changed. And I do think, again, I can't speak for Tim Cook, but I do think uh, what's going on there is their attempt to sort of separate themselves from China. Of course, the problem is China could choose to separate themselves from Apple. And I've thought for quite some time that you know, the company with the giant crosshairs on their collective back is, in fact, Apple. And what would that look like if somehow, you know, the Chinese came out with some sort of sanctions against Apple? I, I don't know what that looks like, but I got to believe that's a possibility, especially when you see an announcement like this. In terms of the stock, you make an excellent point. You know, this is where we were effectively last summer, seemingly have topped out once again, Um and, st and Apple does go down. For those that think Apple never sells off, I mean, we talk about it a while. I mean, it does sell off. It rallies, um, but it also sells off in a meaningful way. And it's not, ex it's not cheap in this environment by any stretch of imagination. The last quarter was fine, but it wasn't great by Apple standards. Um, you're talking about a company with still, still single-digit EPS, still single-digit revenue growth with declining margins. Now, I guess the safety net is the fact that their services revenue is probably about, what, 21%-ish of their overall revenue, which is why maybe they deserve it of a premium multiple. But how much is the question? And what's going on here at these levels is the next question. So, 
you know, yeah. I'm inclined to say we're probably topping out here. I think Carter had a similar piece a week or so ago, and we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, it's interesting. When you look at this five-year chart, you look at that all-time high that was made. I think it was like 183, 184-ish or so. We're here at 172. Um, I look at it as like kind of a one-up, two-down scenario, and I'm kind of keying on that 200-day moving average that's down, you know, maybe 53 or yeah, so. Yeah, something like that. And so, like, to me, that's kind of the risk-reward because at this point, I just don't see a scenario where, you know, the, the slowing economy, just the kind of geopolitical tension. I just don't see, like, maybe in a YOLO sort of market, we get back towards those highs. But any hiccups, any broad market sell-off, anything stock-specific, anything targeted at them from China, anything about margins declining because reshoring and all this stuff's going to cost more, you got this stock back at that 153. I mean, like, to me, so it's one up, two or three down. I don't love the risk reward. All right, guy, we said we were going to be on time. We're a Let's little do it then. There. Let's do it. We had a heck of a day here. We covered um, a lot from the macro to I the I think we always cover a lot. I mean, we try, man. We got a little Doug Cass in there. We got a little financials in there. We have, we're going to have Doug Cass on at some point, by the way. Um, you know, well, he's got some things. We've he's actually got, he's so, got an open invite. Yes, of course he does. Um, but that's it, right? I mean, I think that's it. Yankee that's it. baseball tonight. Listen, the resurgent Baltimore Orioles, I mean, reminiscent of the late 1960s with the greats like Brooks Robinson and the Jim Palmers of the world, as you know, Dan. So Yankee baseball back after their day off yesterday. Nobody seems to care. Florida Panthers. You kidding me? Anyway, that's it for market call. I want to thank CME group where risk meets opportunity. Obviously facts that our data provider will be back tomorrow, which I believe is Wednesday with the great Carter Braxton worth, unless he's busy. And then it'll just be the two of us again, but who knows? But that's it for today, Dan. <laughs>